Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for CNS sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. The most important factor for assessing suicide risk is a history of suicide attempts, but not all suicide attempts are the same. The risk rescue rating for a suicide attempt combines two key factors the individual's efforts to decrease the chance of rescue, and the lethality of means. It is known that previous attempts involving more lethal means, including firearms, indicate greater risk of future suicide. In this study, the authors evaluated the prevalence of one method of decreasing the chance of rescue, checking into a local hotel. In six very different counties, an individual's risk of committing suicide increased by 15 to 38 times after checking into a hotel room in their own county relative to other county residents. People check into hotel rooms for a variety of purposes, including home remodel or a hotel event or illicit activities, including drug use, affairs, or prostitution. The authors of this study suggest that there is a subpopulation within the local use population with the goal of avoiding rescue. Consistent with the risk-rescue rating, less lethal means, including drug toxicity, become more effective and prevalent in a setting with less chance of rescue. The purpose of hotel stays by local residents contrasts with the activities of true out-of-county travelers whose usual purpose of stay can be simply summarized in the phrase business or pleasure. Consistent with different objectives for which they are willing to travel a greater distance, hotel guests from outside the local or neighboring county had a reduction in suicide rate by 48 to 88 percent compared to the national average. This finding highlights the protective effect of the tangible meaning or purpose of travel. Opioid use is a significant national crisis impacting individuals struggling with addiction and their families. The majority of individuals who abuse opioids are of child-rearing age, and critical knowledge gaps remain regarding how this abuse impacts their offspring. Fortunately, treatment for opioid use disorders is available. The primary goal of this retrospective study was to evaluate both physical and psychiatric diagnoses of children who have at least one parent participating in a buprenorphine-assisted treatment program. Children of parents receiving treatment were more likely to have been born premature, had jaundice after birth, had more avoiding issues, and had been the victims of abuse or neglect. Children of parents with opioid use disorders were also more likely to be seen by emergency services and were less likely to be covered by private insurance compared to state-funded insurance. Parental opioid use disorder impacts children. More research is needed to better describe long-term effects of treatment of parental opioid use on their offspring and to help design addiction treatment programs to support whole family units. Primary care doctors and physicians treating addiction should be aware of the generational impact of addiction and should be ready to offer referrals and services for the children of parents with opioid addiction. 
a new study may lead to the development of alternative therapies to treat ADHD. ADHD is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders in childhood. It impacts how children function in school and in everyday life. Studies have shown that children with ADHD have a delay in the development of some areas of the brain involved in executive functions. The executive system of the brain is closely connected to the brain areas that determine where we look. Therefore, patients with ADHD who have a delay in their executive system show eye-gaze behavior that is atypical. In this study, for three weeks, patients with ADHD played an interactive video game that players control with their eyes. By focusing on objects or avoiding looking at objects that appear on the screen, the patient wins points and at the same time trains the executive function of the brain. After the training sessions, patients performed better on several attention tasks. Such an improvement was not found in the control group that played the game with the mouse. Thus, training the ocular motor system with an interactive eye-tracking game leads to a reduction in the symptoms of ADHD. Pharmacologic treatment for ADHD in children is effective in only 60% of cases and can produce severe side effects. This study shows that interactive eye-tracking games can be used as an alternative therapy to treat ADHD. Chronic sleep disorders affect an estimated 50 to 70 million adults in the United States. Long-term effects of sleep loss are associated with a wide range of negative health consequences and increased age-specific mortality, while achieving seven hours of sleep is associated with improved longevity. A fast-growing first-line treatment for sleep is melatonin. However, literature on the pharmacokinetics of different preparations of oral melatonin dosages is scarce. This study examines the pharmacokinetic and safety profile of a 7-hour continuous-release and absorption melatonin, known as CRA melatonin, compared with an immediate-release product. The immediate-release melatonin used in this study is the largest-selling melatonin brand in the United States. In this crossover design, there was a substantial difference in favor of CRA melatonin in the maximal plasma concentration, shape of the curve, and time above the targeted blood levels. This improved profile of CRA melatonin may help alleviate barriers to successful melatonin efficacy in sleep. CRA melatonin features a novel ion-powered pump delivery technology, which facilitates release and absorption in the distal gastrointestinal tract, overcoming melatonin's inherent absorption issues. This delivery technology enables CRA melatonin to reach and maintain a 7-hour presence above targeted blood levels for sleep, allowing an exogenous melatonin preparation to closely match the endogenous melatonin nocturnal release profile. This study was funded by Physician Seal LLC, Boca Raton, Florida. Patients with severe mental illness often lack care coordination between primary care and mental health providers, which can negatively impact quality and safety of patient care. This issue's continuing medical education offering reports on a project undertaken to engage stakeholders from primary care and mental health organizations to develop a cross-organization communication system. 
The specific goal was to improve metabolic monitoring for co-managed patients treated with second-generation antipsychotics. The participants first gathered to brainstorm why they thought a communication gap existed and what could be done to improve it. From the data, the authors generated concept maps that helped identify priorities and determine the steps that would be easiest to implement to improve monitoring. Three important domains in communication were identified, process workflow, advocacy, and a patient center focus. Seven high-priority and easier-to-implement items were identified and resulted in practice changes across both organizations. They included developing a standard release of information, identifying a point person from each clinic, endorsing a monitoring protocol across organizations, agreeing that metabolic monitoring of second-generation antipsychotics would be the responsibility of the primary care clinicians, beginning monthly cross-organization medication reconciliation and care conferences, developing standard electronic record documentation, and providing education. The authors plan to follow up to see if a year of the interventions will make a difference in the frequency of appropriate monitoring. This work was supported by a Minnesota Department of Health Rural Family Medicine residency grant. Alcohol use disorders represent a pervasive pattern of remission and relapse. Unlike other addictive disorders, withdrawal can be life-threatening. The period after detoxification can be followed by a protracted withdrawal predominated by cravings, often leading to relapse. Current standard of care for withdrawal includes initiation of benzodiazepines and taper, which can be problematic, particularly in certain populations and when done as an outpatient. Gabapentin presents an interesting treatment option, given that there are some data to support its use in withdrawal and maintenance treatment to suppress the problematic cravings that often trigger relapse. In this study, the authors gathered this evidence and performed three different sub-analyses to examine the efficacy of gabapentin in the management of alcohol withdrawal and cravings. Their analysis of pooled data suggests that the Use of gabapentin to manage alcohol withdrawal symptomatology and related cravings is at least moderately effective. Although these findings are positive and very promising, the authors maintain that given the limited number of available well-designed studies, these findings require further support through more rigorously designed studies before full endorsement for implementation in clinical practice. Schizophrenia is a chronic mental disorder with considerable disability that affects 1% of all adults globally. In recent years, there has been considerable research interest in identifying biological biomarkers associated with schizophrenia. Biomarkers help in early identification of the disease. Animal studies and retrospective medical record reviews have reported an association between elevated unconjugated bilirubin levels and schizophrenia. In the present prospective study, the authors confirm this association between elevated levels of unconjugated bilirubin and schizophrenia in patients admitted to an inpatient psychiatric facility. This finding suggests that elevated levels of unconjugated bilirubin could be a potential biomarker for schizophrenia. 
The authors maintain that future studies need to replicate this finding in a larger patient sample from diverse clinical settings. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings so there is always something new to explore. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton, signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.